For the last time, hello and welcome to A History of Hannibal. Episode 79 Epilogue In 201 BC, the Second Punic War finally drew to a close. In many ways, the result was inevitable. It was an unwinnable war from the Carthaginian perspective. It was an analysis shrewdly made by the Syracusan King Hiero during the First Punic War. Rome had significantly greater manpower to draw upon than did Carthage, and, in particular, did Hannibal. Let me explain. Part of the issue seems to be that it's difficult to work out what the precise Carthaginian objectives of the war were. It seems as though the Carthaginians themselves were not quite sure what they hoped to achieve. Was the war about removing the Romans from Spain? Was it about removing the Romans from the Mediterranean islands? Did Hannibal actually want to destroy Rome? If the focus of the war was to remove the Romans from Spain and Sicily, controlling them would make logically more sense than launching an invasion of Italy, which Hannibal did. That would be conventional warfare, but Hannibal was not conventional, so it makes it more difficult to work out exactly what he was up to. The invasion of Italy could have helped secure a quick victory in the outlying theatres. The main positive about an Italian invasion was that it was so unexpected. If Hannibal launched an attack that could knock the Romans off their feet, exactly as he did at Trebia and Trasimene and Cannae, then he could press what would seem like a mild peace. He would leave Italy alone, the Romans could concern themselves with Greece if they wanted, but they would be forced to lose their navy, and Carthage would rise into a western Mediterranean ascendancy with its new Spanish empire. After Cannae, when Capua was ready to turn on Rome, that would have been the perfect opportunity. But Hannibal didn't press for peace. He instead began to operate a strategy of, rather than inflicting stunning victory after stunning victory, slowly flipping Roman cities to his side. This is the phase of the war not often covered in detail, and it's simply glossed over. But, as we've covered so much of it, I believe that it is a crucial phase in the war. It is my position that Hannibal changed his war aims after Cannae. The initial strategy was shock and awe, which would explain a strategy of trying to get control of former Carthaginian territories, but the move towards speaking with Philip V of Macedon and his alliance with Capua indicates a different strategy. Had this been his aim from the beginning of the war, you would have expected him to make moves with Philip earlier, or begin unpicking the Italian alliance from the edges. He could have very easily set about making a base in Etruria, Liguria and the Po Valley. From the moment he arrived in Italy, 
even after Trasimene, they would have been the perfect opportunity to set about this strategy. There was no need for Hannibal to wait until Cannae, and until he was in the relatively secure Roman area of Campania, which was instantly vulnerable to attack from the Roman-controlled area. Hannibal was a brilliant general, and he should have realised that Campania could not hold out against the rest of Italy. Whereas, if Hannibal had started his strategy after the Trebia, or Trasimene, he would have had a secure rear. Hannibal was likely overconfident, which would explain his actions. From the moment he decided to abandon the strategy of limited warfare, he was doomed. Hannibal was a brilliant general, but he couldn't do the impossible. One army could not defeat the entire Italian peninsula. He was massively outnumbered. Without reinforcements, he could not possibly hope to claim it all for Carthage. But Carthage didn't make preparations to adequately reinforce his war effort directly. Indeed, their priority of reinforcing Spain and Sicily over Italy suggests that those back in Carthage saw those as the strategic priority. They could not directly reinforce Italy from Africa while Rome had control of the Mediterranean, and yet this was just how the situation was throughout the war. Carthage made no effort to build a fleet. Had Carthage done so, perhaps they would have been able to send Hannibal a new army. Had a 40,000-strong army landed in Italy to help the assault immediately after Cannae, the war would have had a very different character. Hannibal would have been able to win a war which saw them force the Romans out of Spain. But, simply put, no matter how talented the general, one small army could not defeat Rome and Italy. Hannibal had been brought up knowing that Carthage had a difficult relationship with the various African peoples. They had to be suppressed during the interbellum in the Mercenary War, you will recall. Perhaps Hannibal based this strategy change upon the assumption that the Italian allies would fall away easily, and that the conquest of one city by one army was quite possible. But the Italians stuck together. The task was impossible. Without reinforcements, it was inevitable that slowly Hannibal's strength would fade, and eventually the war would move to other theatres. When Scipio attacked Africa, far more disunited than Italy, the war was clearly nearing its end. Hannibal made a last stand at Zama, but I think the narrative makes it clear that he was fighting a losing battle. It was only a matter of time before Carthage lost the war. That, just to repeat, is my analysis and my assessment. Feel free to disagree with me. After the war, Scipio and Hannibal had very contrasting fortunes. Hannibal rose to the rank of Suffus in Carthage, the equivalent of the Roman consul. He used his position to overthrow the oligarchic government, which Hannibal blamed for losing the war. If they had adequately supplied him, they would not be in this mess. His attempt to move power away from the oligarchs was supported in Rome by Scipio, but Hannibal simply made too many enemies in Carthage. He was driven away in exile. 
The reason given to the Romans was that Hannibal was encouraging Antiochus III of the Seleucid Empire to declare war against Rome. There is questionable evidence for this, but regardless, in 198, Hannibal was forced to flee to Tyre, and then, in 195, onto the court of Antiochus. In contrast, Scipio was made the princeps senatus, the titular head of the senate. He held great influence as Rome continued its policy of expansion, eventually reaching into the eastern Mediterranean. Here occurred one of the more famous reunions in the ancient world, if you will allow me to refer to Livy, Book 35, Chapter 14, quote, Owing to illness, Sulpicius stopped at Pergamum, while Villius went on to Ephesus. As he heard that the king had commenced hostilities in Pisidia. He made a short stay there, and, as Hannibal happened to be there at the time, he made a point of paying frequent visits to him in order to ascertain his future plans, and if possible, remove any apprehension from his mind as to danger threatening him from Rome. Nothing else was discussed in these interviews, but they had one result, which, though really undesigned, might have been deliberately aimed at, for they lowered Hannibal's authority with the king and cast suspicion upon all that he said or did. Claudius, following Achilles, who wrote in Greek, says that Publius Scipio Africanus was one of the commissioners, and that he had conversations with Hannibal. One of these, he reports, Africanus asked Hannibal whom he considered to be the greatest commander, and the reply was, Alexander of Macedon, for, with a small force, he routed innumerable armies and traversed the most distant shores of the world, which no man ever hoped to visit. Africanus then asked him whom he would put second, and Hannibal replied, Pyrrhus. He was the first who taught how to lay out a camp, and moreover, no one ever showed more cleverness in the choice of positions and the disposition of troops. He possessed, too, the art of winning popularity to such an extent that the nations of Italy preferred the rule of a foreign king to that of the Roman people, who had so long held the foremost place in that country. On Scipio's asking him whom he regarded as third, Hannibal, without any hesitation, replied, Myself. Scipio smiled and asked, What would you say if you would have vanquished me? In that case, replied Hannibal, I should say that I surpassed Alexander and Pyrrhus, and all other commanders in the world. Scipio was delighted with the turn which the speaker had with true Carthaginian adroitness given his answer, and the unexpected flattery it conveyed, because Hannibal had set him apart from the ordinary run of military captains as an incomparable commander. End quote. Indeed, Hannibal's reputation at the court slowly diminished. While he gave sound advice, he was considered something of an embarrassment. Antiochus placed him in charge of the fleet, which was a terrible idea, considering that he was a land commander, not an admiral. Hannibal was defeated by the Romans in one of their wars against Antiochus, and Hannibal was forced to flee. He went to Bithynia, where he stayed for a number of years, but Rome demanded Hannibal be handed over to them. Hannibal wouldn't allow this, and he committed suicide.
most likely in 183 BC. Scipio's position in Rome took a similar path. His actions in the Greek wars were harshly criticised by the faction in the Senate led by Cato the Elder. He was accused of crimes and, while he was not convicted, he felt betrayed by his country. He left for voluntary exile in Campania. He soon fell ill and died. We're not sure on the exact date of his death, some suspect it was in 184, but 183 is also possible. I hope that it is 183. That would add some poetic tragedy. Scipio and Hannibal, the two great generals of the Second Punic War, both betrayed by their countries, both died in an exile in the same year. It certainly says something about how quickly events can turn on you. With these two great men dead, history continued to march on. The Second Punic War had an incalculable effect on both Africa and Italy. The south of Italy was destroyed, while Roman armies were now the undisputed masters of the Mediterranean, and wealth flowed into Italy like never before. It was concentrated in the hands of the elites. The great estates started pushing out the rural poor who flocked to Rome. The rise in numbers of the urban poor would play a great role in the coming ascendancy of the Gracchi brothers, but that is for the future. In the early 2nd century BC, the key piece of information was that Rome subjected the East and became the most powerful military force in the Mediterranean world. But the Romans had long memories. They were still fearful of the Gauls from the Gallic sack of Rome 200 years previously, and they still feared Carthage. Hannibal had made a lasting impression. Therefore, there were growing concerns about what was happening in Africa. Carthage had focused its attention on Africa, which had been barely touched by the war. African agriculture was a boom industry. Carthage itself was annoyed with Massinissa, who kept pressing for more territory for them about once every ten years. In 155 BC, Carthage snapped and a more militant faction came to power. They appealed to Rome to stop Massinissa's attacks, which, in 152, led to the arrival of a delegation. One year before Carthage was to finish paying off the war indemnity. Rome didn't do anything, and Carthage snapped again. The pro-Numidian faction was expelled from the city. Cato, who had been saying that Carthage needed to be destroyed for years, persuaded the Senate to go to war. It must be noted that there was a peace faction led by Scipio Nasica, who feared what the destruction of their enemy would do to Rome. Polybius gives us four different receptions to events. The first was that Rome was acting with far-sighted defence. Carthage simply couldn't be allowed to exist. The second was that Rome was entering a new and brutal phase of imperialism. The third was that, while Romans were generally civilised, they had been strangely harsh with Carthage for the duration of history. And the fourth, which it seems Polybius himself agreed with, was that Roman action was justified because Carthage sent an embassy to Rome in 149, offering their unconditional surrender, ad editio. This gave Rome complete control of Carthage and the power to do as she wished. 
when the Carthaginians resisted because the Romans wouldn't explain properly what they were planning to do with Carthage, they broke the terms of their surrender, forcing Rome to take a military approach, and further ingraining the belief that Carthaginians were not to be trusted. The Roman consuls, Marcus Manilius and Lucius Marcius Censorinus, travelled to Africa with 80,000 infantry and 4,000 cavalry. Utica immediately surrendered, and by April 149, the Romans had set up a bridgehead. A diplomatic mission was sent. The Carthaginians were told to leave their city. They could rebuild a city on the interior, but Carthage itself must be destroyed. When word of this reached Carthage, the citizens went ballistic, murdering pro-Roman senators and attacking any Italian they could find. They wouldn't surrender, but would instead fight. Carthage itself would have to be taken by force. Very little would happen in 149. The Romans established themselves near Carthage and made several probing attacks, but these were easily beaten off. Carthage would not be easy to take. Indeed, the war would take another Scipio. Scipio Aemilianus was the son of Aemilius Paulus, the man who had conquered Macedonia, and had also been adopted into the Cornelii family by the eldest son of Scipio Africanus. He had powerful connections and took advantage of the situation to rise quickly through the ranks to take the consulship in 147, where he was voted the command in Africa. We are very well informed about this because Scipio's teacher and counsellor was Polybius, who was actually in Africa for the Third Punic War, making this one of the rare instances where we have a real primary source. This Scipio travels to Africa with his close friend Lilius, the son of Scipio Africanus's Lilius. History doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. Scipio made various efforts to block off the supplies to the city, while the Carthaginians tried to ensure that they had access to the sea. Over the summer of 147, it became clear that the Carthaginians were going to lose, but they tried to hold out as long as possible. By the winter, all the African settlements surrendered to Scipio, and only Carthage was left. The Carthaginians were familiar with the Romans and offered Scipio terms, which they hoped he would accept before a new commander could arrive in 146, but Scipio was determined to see Carthage destroyed. He wouldn't rush. He had learned the lessons of the First Punic War all too well. It proved a very wise decision. In the spring of 146, he learned that his command had been extended. All Scipio had to do now was move in for the kill. The Carthaginians were, effectively, fish in a barrel. Scipio signalled this with the Evocatio, a process we mentioned way back in the early episodes. Essentially, the Romans asked the gods to abandon the city and join Rome instead. The assault started in the commercial quay, and Plutarch reports that one of the first men into Carthage was Tiberius Gracchus. What followed was a brutal period of urban warfare over the following days as the Roman troops invaded, attacked, and destroyed the city, block 
by block. 50,000 civilians were captured and sold into slavery. The final ones to hold out were the Roman deserters, the Carthaginian general, Hasdrubal, his wife, and their two children. Hasdrubal's nerve cracked, he surrendered, and, in disgust, his wife committed suicide and killed their two children. Carthage, once the greatest power of the Western Mediterranean, had fallen. The city was looted and put to the torch. It took ten days to burn. Punic Carthage was destroyed, and in its place would be built the Roman province of Africa, which would be the dominant feature of North Africa until the Muslim invasion of the 7th century. As Scipio and Polybius stood together on the North African coast, watching the city burn, Scipio was moved to tears. Polybius records their conversation in Book 38, Chapter 21. Quote, Turning round to me at once, and grasping my hand, Scipio said, A glorious moment, Polybius. But I have a dread foreboding that some day the same doom will be pronounced on my country. It would be difficult to mention an utterance more statesmanlike and more profound. End quote. This is, I feel, the most appropriate way to bring to a close our account of Hannibal and the Punic Wars. If you've enjoyed this series, you can listen to my others. There is a history of Alexander, remastered, a biography of Alexander the Great. There is Arab Spring, a history, an account of the modern Middle East. And then there is a history of the United States, a project telling the story of the United States of America, from Jamestown to the Cold War. If you want to support me in these endeavours, you can go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. This will allow you, for the cost of $4.99 per month, to subscribe to the membership feed, giving you access to a new episode every two weeks. Currently, there are about 20 episodes on that feed, all about the Aztecs. If you want to keep up to date with what I'm up to, feel free to follow me on Twitter, at HistoryJamie, or like the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast. You can also send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Stay subscribed to this feed, because I'm sure this is not my last podcast on Roman history. But for now, goodbye, and thank you for listening.